Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. As always, I'm Jen Pan, here today with none other than special guest, Labor Paul. Special, not so special. You're here a lot. You're, we're going to bring you back more. Paul, how are you? Good. We are all special here We're at all Jacobin. special. We're all special. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we have a great show today. Um, I will be talking to Gary Gersel about the New Deal order and the Soviet Union. That's coming up. I'm also talking to Liza Featherstone about uh, some new Hillary Clinton comments. That's also coming up. But of course, Paul, first, we've got to dive into some labor issues. Uh, I will be asking you some questions about a uh, potential railroad strike that may be looming on the horizon. I think that uh, has the potential to be a big deal. We're going to be diving into that. Um, but first, I wanted to get your thoughts on a, a different sort of piece of labor news that I came across last week. And uh, so, it, so it's this. Basically, uh, Minneapolis public school teachers were on strike for a few weeks, and they have recently uh, negotiated a new contract. Now, this new contract has turned out to be a little bit controversial because there's a clause in there that actually uh, gets rid of traditional seniority protections when it comes to layoffs and instead uh, sort of, I guess, stipulates that teachers of color can receive extra protection in the event of layoffs, right? So, um, you know, just very quickly, I think most people are probably aware that in a traditional, in a good union contract, uh, there will be a clause in there uh usually called what, like a seniority clause or something that says that in the event of layoffs, uh, layoffs will be conducted in reverse order of seniority. So a simple way of putting that, I, I think some people often say uh, last hired, first fired, right? So basically, if you're in the job for longer, you will be less likely to be laid off. So the new Minneapolis teachers contract uh, has some additional language in there that says that uh teachers of color can actually be exempt from these seniority protections. Now, as you can imagine, conservative and right-wing outlets uh, got wind of this and are going crazy. Uh, you know, right-wing news outlets have been reporting this clause as, you know, white teachers are, are going to be laid off or white teachers will be laid off first, right? And there is there is a kernel of truth to that. And I think that we should talk about that. But first, I want to read a quote from a more sympathetic outlet that was covering this contract, because I think this is actually a little more interesting. So uh, the Minneapolis Star Tribune uh, covered covered this clause of the contract, and their headline was, New Minneapolis teacher contract language disrupts seniority to protect educators of color. Now, I'm going to read a quote from the article, and then, Paul, I'm going to get your thoughts. So they write, Teachers of color in the district will have new safeguards. The agreement that ended the three-week teacher strike this spring includes contract language that upends the traditional last-in, first-out hiring policies as a way to retain members of populations underrepresented among licensed teachers. The new contract makes Minneapolis one of the only school districts in the country with such seniority-disrupting language, district and union leaders say. They hope it helps foster a teaching staff that better mirrors the demographics of the pupils they work with, with more than 60% of them students of color. 
All right. So, Paul, uh, I, of course, have some thoughts, but I want to turn it over to you now because I just said a lot. Uh, so um, what are your thoughts on seniority disruption? Wow. Um, so, I mean, let's start with seniority. You know, seniority has always been like one of the bedrock principles of trade unionism. You know, I think usually when think of pe- people think of unions, it's like wages, benefits and probably seniority. And you know, it's not perfect. Like, we don't want anyone to be laid off, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure we can all think about we've been in a workplace where it's like that guy who's been here 25 years is an asshole. You know, why Why does he get benefits over me? But, you know, you, we have to have some kind of system that has some semblance of fairness and, and seniority helps with that. And there's definitely, you know, historically been some very real tension with seniority when it comes to race. I mean, if you have yeah. industries where they've discriminated in the past against non-white workers and then they let them in, you know, those workers, of course, are going to have less seniority disproportionately and will probably be the first to be laid off or at least earlier in a historical period. You know, last time I was, I was on, I talked about blue collar black workers in the auto mm-hmm. industry. And, you know, it's great. So many of them were hired in the 60s, but that was relatively late. So we had a, a situation where in the 1980s when plants started to close, these black workers were the first to be um, fired. So, you know, it's a difficult question. I'm not trying to negate that there are um, some tensions here, but really there's no one else has really come up with a sustainable solution for this issue. And I think the hope is that after long enough time in an integrated society, you'll, you'll have roughly equal numbers of white workers and workers of color with high seniority. And I think the big issue with this proposal is I can't think of a better way to sow division and resentment within the union than a policy like this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who knows? Maybe the membership in this case is overwhelmingly in favor of it. I, I don't know. Um, but it seems like this could open the door to a lot of really big problems. Um, and don't forget, you know, the public sector now is right to work on a national yeah. level. So uh, public sector workers can opt out of the union of paying their union um, fair share fees. And my fear is something like this could cause an exodus um, and, like you mentioned, give ammo to the right wing that's already trying to demonize um, teachers' unions. You also could have some very, um, uh, just frankly, awkward situations of people trying to parse out who counts as a person of color Mm. or just someone who's maybe white passing but is biracial or multiracial Mm -hmm. trying to claim some of this. Um, I could just envision this getting very ugly and very divisive in a way that doesn't really help um, yeah. And we could talk about, I think, maybe some other ways that maybe approaching this issue. But um, right. I could just see this causing division. It gives the right wing like a perfect, like, you know, fastball right down the middle. They can, you know, sink their teeth into. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of problems with this. I also want to add, um, by the way, if you're interested in looking at the language in this contract, uh, you know, you can Google it. It's It's available online. The contract doesn't state that teachers of color are 100% safe from layoffs. There's some like slippery language in there where it says something like teachers of color may be exempt from the traditional seniority layoff protections. So what that indicates to me is it's just giving more discretion to the employer and it's not necessarily actually protecting anybody, right? Like, so it could be the case that let's say layoffs come up and, you know, there's like a teacher of color who, uh, you know, might be on the chopping block uh, and the, the school district still wants to get rid of them because they're like a troublemaker or whatever, 
the, there's nothing in the contract that prevents them from still axing that person. So there's a lot of yeah. wiggle room in there. And I think that, you know, to go back to your point about seniority, like the reason why it's so fundamental for unions and for labor is because it is seniority is objective, right? Like it's just the length of time that somebody has been in the position. Uh, it takes the power of discretion away from the employer. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's really important because, you know, as, as, we have talked about many times, employers have so much discretion over almost every part of hiring and firing that uh, the only thing that can mitigate that, you know, is a strong union contract. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the less clear it is, the more of a problem. I mean, it's already a potentially problematic um, clause they have in there, but if it's very clear, at least it's clear, but now, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is indicating that it's going to be fought out almost on a case by case basis. And that just, I think is just going to create more, ugliness and kind of resentment um, within within the union. And I think, you know, and now on this problem of like, you know, more educators of color in districts, you know, I think about two of the larger districts like Chicago and um, Philadelphia, where I've taught, you know, both of these are districts that um, have a, a relatively high number of teachers of color. And these numbers have declined in recent mm-hmm. decades. But I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at like the Philly school district now, actually, you know, a lot of the black teachers are disproportionately older and higher seniority. So right now, I mean, functionally, seniority actually plays a big role in protecting mm-hmm. these teachers already. Right. And I think if you look at the issues of why there's been a decline in, in educators of color, I mean, it's it's a little complicated. There's a lot of things going on at once. But part of it is just these general policies against teachers, you know, teaching to the tests. Um, a lot of times they're forcing out older teachers that are not really as used to this new mode of, mm-hmm. of how education is going. That's led to a lot of older teachers of color leaving. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is these general attacks on public education that are leading to many older teachers of color being pushed out. I think ultimately we have to deal with those issues. I mean, even thinking broadly, I mean, thinking about um, you know, the cost of higher education, um, again, disproportionately um, hurting um, students of color who are going to college, taking on student debt. So, I mean, things like forgiving student debt, making public colleges tuition free. I think things like that would also open up, you know, more uh, people going into the teaching profession. So I, I'm just not sure that this approach is really the way to, to get at this problem. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was going to ask you uh, what a better solution would be for like addressing, again, teacher shortages and especially the, you know, uh, exodus of teachers of color uh, from the workforce. But you kind of just answered it. So why don't we switch over to the real strike now? Uh, because that's, you know, another yeah. big piece of labor news, probably bigger than this one, you know, <laughs> Minneapolis teachers, teachers contract clause. Um, although, of course, as a public school teacher, like I did want to get your take on it. Um, but let's talk about the real strike uh, because that that is looming on the horizon and I think it's gone a little bit underreported uh, mm-hmm. so so I want to bring that up here so just as a little bit of background um, you know I think something like over a hundred thousand railroad workers are currently weighing a strike I believe last month uh, something like 99.5% of the union membership voted to authorize a strike mm-hmm. so um, maybe Paul why why did 99.5% of railroad railroad workers vote to authorize a strike what got them to this point and more importantly what would the consequences of a national railroad strike be yeah so first i'll go i mean the um background is a little bit complicated so basically since 2020 the major freight rail companies and rail unions have been in 
contract negotiations. So these are not passenger rail like Amtrak, but the major freight rail that's carrying, you know, industrial materials, things like that across the country. So there are 12 rail unions representing roughly 115,000 workers. And so for rail workers, also airline workers, their collective bargaining is covered by the Railway Labor Act, um, which is basically a process designed to make it as hard as possible for them to strike. Um, mm-hmm. So turns out the government is not that stupid. They realized very early on that you know our transportation system, especially rail and air, is really fundamentally critical to the economy and they don't want to shut down. So basically the Railway Labor Act really draws out and prolongs the procedures of collective bargaining. It also mandates that the government steps in to mediate before a strike is allowed. So basically a month ago, they reached their end of their you know time to, to bargain. A mandatory 30-day cooling off period was called. President Biden stepped in to form the Presidential Emergency Board, or the PEB, mm-hmm. and their job is to make recommendations for how to move forward. And so they recently released them. We can, we can get to those later. But really, the, the main issues, I think, for rail workers are centering around um, their working conditions and their quality of life. Um, most rail workers are on call 24-7. They're working up to 19 hours a day. They really don't have vacation days or sick days. Um, even on days they're not working, they have to spend a lot of time waiting at terminals so they can get back home. So you can just imagine the kind of havoc this is going to wreak on, on a family life, on your personal life. And the railroads are increasingly short-staffed, partly as a result of a policy on the part of the companies to cut their workforce, um, try to squeeze more out of fewer workers, and also partly from workers leaving because the job has become unsustainable. Um, Mm -hmm. To give one figure, in the last six years alone, um, in the major freight railroad companies, they've lost 45,000 workers. That's 29% of their total workforce just in the last uh, six years. So, you know, things like pay and benefits are an issue. They're, they're always an issue, especially in this period of inflation. But it's really these scheduling and these working conditions that are at the heart of the crisis in the railroad industry. Um, and, you know, this a lot of this can be traced back to a, um, a strategy the companies adopted called Precision Scheduled Railroading, or PSR. And really simply, this is lean production for the railroads, um, figuring out how they can cut as much as possible from the workforce, how they can cut out routes that are unprofitable, how they can consolidate um, rail companies, cut corners on safety standards. And so this has been a disaster for workers, but surprise, they do it because um, Wall Street loves it. And you've, we've had this absurd situation in the rail industry lately where, you know, despite the, the quality of the um, companies has gone down, you know, the, the amount of times they're delivering on time that has declined, They're cutting their workforce, but their stock prices have gone up. Um, So I'll give one example. You know, Union Pacific, one of the bigger freight rail companies, they've cut its workforce over the last 10 years from 45,000 to 30,000. They've um, had a decline in on-time deliveries. Their stock prices, dividend payouts have um, quintupled over that Mm -hmm. time period. So shareholders are getting very rich from this, um, you know, strategy. They're spending most of their money on stock buybacks instead of investing in their workforce, investing in the infrastructure. And that's kind of leading um, to this situation today where these workers are, are on the brink. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I could talk a little bit about the, the recommendations that have come from the government yeah. at this point. 
Yeah, because it it is kind of unusual that Biden or that the federal government has sort of intervened or uh, uh, become involved in these labor negotiations, right? So, I mean, you explained a little bit about why, you know, about how that was mandated, uh, but but what what is the status so far? Yeah, so they've stepped in to provide recommendations, um, and really they're they're not very good. Um, so <laughs> the only kind of good thing was their wage recommendation. So they recommended 24% wage increases over the life of the contract, including back pay from 2020. You know, if that is accepted, that is probably one of the better deals they've gotten in the last 30 years. Um, but again, that's not necessarily the main issue for rail workers. So the recommendations do not do anything about sick leave, about scheduling policies, about crew size. Um, so one big push from the companies has been to cut down from two-person crews to one-person crew. Mm-hmm. And just imagine, I mean, probably people have seen or gotten stuck, you know, in front of or behind these huge, huge rail um, cars going by. I mean, you have like yeah. 200 cars attached, sometimes two to three miles long. And right now, they're only two person, two people mandate, uh, manning those um, lines. And imagine if it's cut down to one. That's what they're yeah. trying to push on. So these recommendations don't do anything about that. Also, the rail unions were pushing for a cap on their health care costs. Um, and the um, presidential board, they recommended lifting that cap to up to 15 percent um, workers paying into the health care plan. Um, so really, it, it does not address their major concerns. And the rumbling you're hearing from workers is they do not like um, this deal right now. So basically, from here, there is another 30 day cooling off period. Um, some of the rail unions members can vote on the agreement. Um, some of them won't. Um, but basically, a strike could start on September 16th. And also remember that all 12 unions don't have to strike for there to be a shutdown. Um, yeah. Back in 1992, that was the last time we had a rail strike. Only the machinists um, voted to strike, and that still shut down the rail system. You can mm-hmm. imagine. I mean, all these workers are pretty essential. So even if a few of them or one of them voted to strike, that could be a shutdown. And then from there, um, it actually goes to Congress. So from there, Congress can intervene. Um, They can actually try to force the workers back to work. And this is where it could get, I think, really interesting. I mean, maybe Congress will be forced to um, try to present a deal that is better than what the board presented. Um, They also have to weigh, do they really want to piss these workers off right before the midterms? Um, Mm -hmm. Do they want to do that? Do they want to have a shutdown by the time of the midterms? So... I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Congress plays it if there is a strike starting on September 16th. Um, so there's really a lot still hanging in the balance. Um, we should know by the middle of September what the next move is going to be from the unions, how members are voting on it, and then what yeah. it will be in Congress's uh, court after that. Yeah. So, you know, of course, the last time you were on, uh, we talked about the Teamsters gearing up for a big fight with UPS next year. And I think what kind of all of this boils down to is obviously transportation and logistics uh, are like incredibly significant, not just to the economy, but from a left perspective for challenging the power of the business sector and challenging the power of capital, basically. Uh, What, uh, you know, help us under, help us understand, I guess, in broader terms, like why the logistics sector is so important. Like what is going to happen if these, if, even just one of these rail unions goes on strike and how can the left maybe like leverage this uh, for kind of larger political change? 
Yeah, I mean, it would be uh, a huge deal. So, I mean, right now, the majority of freight is moved by trucking, um, and the second most is moved by rail. And again, we're talking about industrial materials. So things that are fundamental to production, fundamental to construction, are moved by these rail lines. And I mean, some of the supply chain issues we're already seeing have to deal with the rail industry. And some of these reforms or quote unquote reforms they've done over the years have actually made it um, more vulnerable, have made it a bigger issue with the supply chain crunch. I mean, the Port of Los Angeles has been really complaining about the rail companies um, and not really delivering stuff like they need to. Um, So this would be huge in terms of we're already in a supply chain crisis. This would a strike would exasperate that, um, you know, really put a chokehold on this economy. Um, so this would be um, a really significant fact. This is why I think the government is going to do everything possible to avoid a strike. The question right. is, are they going to do it by taking a hard ball stance or are they going to feel the leverage from the unions and maybe try to get a better deal than what's possible than before? Right. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I think for the left, I mean, there are currents in the rail industry like Railway Workers United is a national caucus of rail workers um, who have been been fighting on this. Um, it really is a good example of just like, it doesn't take all the workers in this country to flex their muscles to make a huge impact. I mean, if 115,000 right. workers do it, I mean, it would just cause huge chaos in the society. Um, so, and yeah, I mean, but this is also a fight around privatization. I mean, this stems from the deregulation, deregulation of the rail industry going back to 1980. Um, this is a direct outgrowth of that. You know, we used to have around 500,000 workers employed in the rail industry. Now, 115,000 because of privatization and, and deregulation. So this is really a fight that the left uh, should be getting behind and following closely. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to shout out Paul's article on the railway negotiations. Uh, that's in Jacobin, and we will link that down below. Paul, good to see you as always. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me again. All right, so we will be back in a minute with Liza Featherstone, but first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in August and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Decolonial Marxism, Essays from the Pan-African Revolution by Walter Rodney, a previously unpublished collection of Rodney's essays on race, colonialism, and Marxism. The Disappearance of Yosef Mengele, a novel by Oliver Gouez, a rigorously researched factual novel tracing the angel of death as he flees from international police through South America. Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It by Vivek Chibber, an analysis of the core dynamics of our economy and politics. And Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back by Jeremy Gilbert and Alex Williams, a look at how we came to live in a world dominated by big tech and finance. Become a member today at versobooks.com. All right, so I'm now here with Liza Featherstone. She is a columnist for Jacobin and the New Republic and the author of several books, including her most recent Divining Desire, Focus Groups, and the Culture of Consultation. Liza, great to see you. Great to be with you, Jen. So I want to dive into uh, one of your recent articles for Jacobin. It is, of course, on some some comments that Hillary Clinton recently made. Now, uh, 
Just when you think you've forgotten about Hillary Clinton, uh, she seems to pop up at least once a year to accuse Bernie Sanders of sexism. So there was, of course, another instance of that. And uh, you wrote a piece about it. And you wrote in the piece, there's nothing the media loves more than reporting on the sexism of left of center men. So I want to start with this. Why is this such a popular tactic uh, in the media, accusing center left of center men of sexism? And uh, what's going on with Hillary's recent comments? <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think there, there are, with, with the first question, I mean, why, what's going on with the left? Why does the media love when left of center men are sexist? Um, I mean, at times it, it seemed as though um, the Me Too coverage was almost all about that. It was mm -hmm. almost all like some liberal, you know, not necessarily leftist, but some liberal falls from grace. Um, and, um, you know, which is kind of funny considering like the vast majority of, uh, I mean, of even personal sexism is, is probably not from men who are left of center or like, you know, running, you know, public radio stations or right. you know, museums or whatever. Like that's <laughs> right. probably not the worst of offenders, but, uh, but I would say it's, it's two things. Um, I think part of it is um, that, that's the audience for accusations yes. about sexism is the left of center audience, including the liberal audience. Um, and, um, and, you know, so, um, so there, there's always, so there's kind of a, a clickbait in that, you know, that, um, that, Oh no, it's like one of our own guys. Right. Um, you know, so, so that's sort of the, you know, lizard brain media um, explanation of um, the political um, aspect of that is I think a bit more sinister, which yeah, is yeah. that, um, that, that it's, um, it's a perennial neoliberal tactic to discredit the left. Mm -hmm. Obviously there really are left wing and left of center men who are sexist and do sexist things. Um, but, um, but I, I do think that they get focused on more for ideological reasons because mm -hmm. um, I think, um, you know, the corporate, pig media <laughs> does really want to discredit us sometimes mm -hmm. and that's uh, that's a big part of it and that's absolutely what hillary clinton is doing here mm -hmm. you know i mean i you know i think you know some of these stories we just get you know because it's it's sort of man bites dog like uh, like eli wiesel grabbed my butt right. you know? <laughs> I mean, and it's like oh wow that's really shocking but 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 in the case of hillary clinton it's not like that. She's not just trying to get attention. She right. is, she, she, um, she is commi committed to the neoliberal project and an important part of that project is discrediting um, people like Bernie Sanders and a great way to get people um, uh, on the left riled up is to be, to accuse someone of sexism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess that, uh, you know, brings us to the question of like, who are these accusations for? And does anyone actually find these accusations convincing, right? Because uh, with Hillary Clinton, did she did she scrape off more votes by calling Bernie Sanders sexist in 2016? Uh, kind of unclear. Uh, did Elizabeth Warren scrape off more votes by calling Bernie sexist in 2020? Kind of unclear. Uh, so, so who's kind of the target audience of these accusations? And again, like, do you think that people find them convincing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that I think the target of the accusations are um, are you know are a, a certain 
slice of the left of center um, voters. Right. Um, maybe, um, maybe especially, um, you know, the, uh, the activist slice, mm-hmm. like, you know, like it might even be kind of um, the high information voter, like more than, you know, the, the, more than the sort of sitting on the fence, like average person, um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably like, you know, like they, I think that they get genuinely worried that um, elements of the professional class are sympathetic to left ideas, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, and, um, and, and, and are often part of the left movement due to mm-hmm. things they experience in their workplace, you know, or, um, you know, or just, you know, things like their lack of public schools or lack of health care. They have all kinds of reasons to be sympathetic to the left project. Right. And I think that certainly worries neoliberals. And, um, and so accusations of sexism can, um, can kind of help to sort of disrupt and worry that class. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so, so I think that, you know, the Hillary Clinton and to a degree, Elizabeth Warren, maybe know what they're doing with that, that it's not that they are literally going to get more votes, but just right. kind of to disturb the left coalition and make it less appealing mm-hmm. um, to to those, um, those professional class folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's, that's certainly part of it. And it's also just, um, you know, it, um, um, I, 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 at this point, I, I think that it often is effective yeah. um, when neoliberals accuse the left of sexism. I think they do do a lot of damage that way in the same way that, um, you know, the, in the same way that the government sowed discord among activists with Cointelpro in the sixties, you know, just mm-hmm. like, like accusing, um, you know, have planting people in organizations to accuse them of racism. <laughs> right. it, was a, it was effective, you mm-hmm. know, because the left really does like um, often really kind of lose its mind and lose perspective in those yeah. kinds of situations. Um, and, um, but uh, um, so, so I think it's kind of similar. I'm not saying like that, you know, um, Hillary Clinton's like, Cointelpro. <laughs> no, like, 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 I was realizing okay, like that, like that, that sounds, that's not what I'm saying, but I think it's a, it's an analogous kind of mm-hmm. tactic. Um, yeah. um, but I, I don't think it's as effective in the, in this particular situation because I, I think Bernie Sanders just has so much credibility um, on these kinds of issues. Um, and I think people are, um, you know, at this point, um, kind of um, over the accusations right. and scandals. Um, to some degree, for better or for worse, people are a little jaded about um accusations of sexism in general (laughs) because of of a lot of different um, me too developments so Mm -hmm. i think it's it's particularly um unripe uh, Mm -hmm. at that moment um but but i think also in bernie's case particular like i mean he's just really shown um so much commitment um to um women and minorities and everybody else in the working class that I just think that um, most people are going to roll their eyes. Right. Yeah. So I guess that like brings us to the final question, which is how should the left fend off these accusations, but sort of more specifically, should the left respond at all? Right. Because I don't know, I'm very torn about it. Like on one hand, every time something like this comes up, I basically want to do, you know, like the equivalent of your article where, you know, I list Bernie Sanders, like, 
like feminist bona fides, you know, and like talk about why like Hillary Clinton's neoliberal feminism like is actually a complete dead end. Like there's part of me that wants to do that. But then on the other hand, you know, based on what we've just been talking about, because it is so obviously a kind of left baiting tactic, there's another part of me that's like, just ignore it or be like, Hillary, this doesn't work, you know? So I don't know your, (laughs) your, your final thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I mean, like it's like I'm I'm always open to the question of should, should I have written that article? At all? <laughs> By the way, I just want to say I am grateful for the article, and we are linking that below. But just yeah. broadly, no, 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 I I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, like it, it is it is a good question. Um, should we even bother to respond to things like that? Um, I say yes because mm-hmm. you never know who is tuning in and at what point, you know, like, I mean, like what I just said about how people are basically kind of over it, I think applies mm-hmm. to certainly a lot of our Jacobin reader, like readers and audience, but, um, but not everybody, a lot of times like people are just like newly tuning into political debates um, and, you know, maybe hearing this for the first time um, and, um, and, you know, let's not forget that um, Hillary Clinton um, one, uh, uh, you know, she, when she ran in 2016, she won the elections by millions of millions of, of votes, yeah. um, most of whom were um, probably just voting against Trump and didn't want Trump to be president. Mm-hmm. But even with but that that adjusted, she has a lot of fans. Yeah. So um, so you do you do want to um, respond to what she says and you know take it seriously and um, and take into account that people do take her seriously and we want um people to um we want people to um um know that the left takes um what she says um, seriously you know so that, you know so that we're um actually engaging with all of those people um so i i think it to a degree it is it, it is it is worth responding to um the um, what I would say is how in general the left should respond is, um, you know, be more like Bernie. Be, <laughs> you know, like we should all be so committed to um, fighting racism and sexism in, on in its institutionalized um, material forms um, that, um, you know, that when someone makes these accusations of us, um, our, um, our, our, our comrades and people in general just kind of um, shrug and don't believe it. Well said. Uh, again, we are linking Liza's article down below. Liza, thank you so much. Great to see you. Great to see you, Jen. Thank you. All right. I'm now here with Gary Gerstel. He is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History at the University of Cambridge and the author of many books, including, of course, his most recent, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Gary, great to see you. Uh, Good to have you back. It's good to be back, Jen. Thanks. So uh, I actually want to pick up on our discussion from last time. You, of course, were on our channel to talk about uh, the rise and fall of the neoliberal order. And uh, I think what um, what 
something that I think is interesting to discuss is the New Deal order, because you point out that the U.S. has actually uh, experienced two major political orders. There's, of course, the neoliberal order, which we discussed last time, and the New Deal order that comes before it, uh, which which you talk about quite a bit in your book on the neoliberal order. So uh, the, the New Deal order, of course, lasted for around half a century in the U.S. Uh, between the 1930s and 1980s. Maybe just to open, how would you characterize the New Deal order? Well, it emerged in the Great Depression, uh, and uh, it was presided over by Franklin Roosevelt. It didn't begin as a political order, began as a, as a political movement. And at its core was an ideological principle oppositional to what became central to the neoliberal order. The core ideological principle was that capitalism left to its own devices was chaotic, destructive, harmful to people, harmful to capitalists, harmful to elites, uh, and that uh, it couldn't function if left to its own devices, if the ideology of laissez-faire than very popular or before the New Deal order came in was allowed to prevail. Uh, and in order for capitalism to work, in order for American democracy to survive, uh, the federal government had to take upon itself the responsibility for managing capitalism in the public interest. Uh, I don't know if I'd call this anti-capitalist. I don't think I would see in Roosevelt an effort to supersede capitalism. But the belief, and it was, it was central to the time and went to all parts of the body politic, was that capitalists needed help. Uh, and the federal government um, was took it upon itself to provide stability, uh, to help with the business cycle, and crucially to make concessions to groups in American society uh, that, tr that in a free market capitalist system would have very little power or influence. I'm thinking mostly of workers, the labor movement. It required a, a, a set of compromises with, uh, between elites and those on the poor end of the political spectrum to bring uh, more security, to bring more equality, uh, to bring more justice into uh, American life. And one can see the biggest concession or compromise having to do with the labor movement, which uh, prior and even in the first couple of years of the Great Depression was extremely weak and almost a non-factor in American society, except among very skilled elements of the labor force, uh, where they could enforce their skills or withdraw their labor power and employers had to contend with them. But generally, for most workers, it was very weak and very inconsequential. And it became, during the 1930s and 40s, one of the most powerful elements uh, in American life. And employers felt compelled for a variety of reasons to compromise with workers and their labor unions. And this caused a significant redistribution of power in American society away from elites down to the lower orders. It's also the moment when the, the, a federal welfare state established itself for the first time. Uh, and beyond uh, the interests of, of, of workers, there was a sense that the federal government had an obligation to look out for the welfare of all Americans. And that meant not just strengthening unions on the shop floor and giving them more rights, but it meant a, a deep commitment to, to public regulation in something that was des described as the public interest. And that meant 
the imposition of federal regulation on Wall Street. It meant the imposition of federal regulation on America's new mass communications industry, then radio and a little bit later television. Uh, and in so many areas of American life, there was a commitment to the public over the private, mm-hmm. not to eliminate the private, but to have a robust sense of the common wheel and the public good. And uh, central to the New Deal order was this conviction that society would not operate well unless this commitment to the public good was broadly shared and deeply rooted in American life. Uh, and it, this characterizes the New Deal order from the from the moment it becomes an order, uh, which I think doesn't happen right away. It happens in the late 40s and early 1950s. And it continues to characterize American life until the New Deal order begins to break up in the 1970s. Uh, so that gives you a sense of what the New Deal order wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So something that you have previously discussed is that part of what defines a political order as opposed to just a political movement or political ideology is the ability of uh, the dominant party to kind of uh, compel the opposition party to adopt its terms, right? So, um, you know, uh, the last time you were on, we talked about what that looked like under neoliberalism. I think the the kind of quintessential example is Bill Clinton and the Democrats in the 90s uh, pushing through deregulation of the financial sector, communications, uh, welfare reform, uh, and, and sort of adopting the principles of neoliberalism, even though they're even though the Democrats are, you know, ostensibly the opposition party, right? So what does the uh, sort of capitulation of the opposition party look like during the New Deal order? Well, for a while, the opposition party was uh, very, very weak, this being the Republican Party. Uh, Roosevelt won elect- re-election three times, 1936, 1940, and 1944. He was so successful at winning re-election that uh, an amendment was passed after that time, uh, uh, limiting a president to two terms to make sure no one would have that kind of longevity again. Uh, and the question, um, at some point, the Republicans were going to be or were going to come back into power. And the question is, what would they do when they did? Uh, and in 1946, 47, after 1948, after World War II, the Key figure in the Republican Party is Robert Taft, a senator from Ohio. He was called Mr. Republican because he was thought to embody the quint, quintessence of republicanism at that time. And this man abhorred the large federal state. He thought it was un-American. He thought it was threatening to American liberty. He wanted to take the uh, that state down. He wanted to roll America back to what it was in the 1920s and and the 19-teens. He saw uh, the New Deal as putting America on the road to collectivism, which he meant socialism, communism, some form of totalitarianism. And this was the man who was expected to become in the 1946, 47, 48, the uh, next president of the United States, uh, because he was thought to embody the true Republican values. Uh, And As senator, he is successful uh, in 1946, 47, uh, in terms of rolling in 48, rolling back uh, some uh, New Deal efforts. He weakens labor law through the so-called Taft-Hartley Act, of which he was the sponsor 
in the Senate. He's talking about um, rolling back taxation rates on the wealthy. He's reluctant to get involved in the Cold War because he thinks that's going to lead America to having a large centralized militaristic state, which which he doesn't want. Uh, and he he is the man who is expected to take down um, the New Deal and restore America to earlier and more virtuous times. And yet the man who becomes president, uh, uh, the first Republican president, doesn't happen in 48, it happens in 1952, is Dwight D. Eisenhower. And for a long time, people didn't know whether Dwight D. Eisenhower was a Republican or a Democrat. And he uh, succeeds in pushing Taft uh, to the side and becoming the nominee of the party and then winning election in 1952. And the question is, what is he going to do when he comes into office? Uh, and uh, he is. this is the crucial moment when the New Deal moves from movement to political order. I see Eisenhower's central role as leading the Republican Party into acquiescence to the New Deal. He does not try and roll back labor's power. Mm-hmm. He does not try to dissemble uh, Social Security or other elements of the welfare state. In fact, he increases um, the, the the beneficiaries of Social Security. And perhaps most astounding of all, he takes it upon himself to rethink the tax code, which has gone through uh, numerous changes in the 1940s, 1930s and 1940s. The tax rate on the highest income group in America uh, set in World War II, which continues after the war, is somewhere between 91 and 94 percent. Let me repeat that, between 91 and 94 uh, percent. This has to be the most un-Republican policy that one could imagine. And the expectation was that when a Republican came into office, he would roll back that tax rate very, very substantially. The tax rate had made the central government revenue rich, uh, it had made it much more powerful than the states themselves. It had centralized power uh, to an unprecedented degree in Washington. And the expectation was if Taft would have had his way, he would have rolled back that tax rate to much lower levels. And Eisenhower tinkers with it around the edges. He makes some concessions to the wealthy to help them a little bit. But that marginal tax rate remains intact. Uh, and if a Republican were to propose that today in the Republican Party, they would have one more day left in the Republican Party. They would be banished from it and uh, called not just a Democrat, they'd probably be called a socialist. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he could accept labor's power, the welfare state, high taxation rates, he also committed himself to broad public works project manifesting itself in the interstate highway uh, project, the which was the grid built during his presidency. Uh, the fact that he assents to all this is a sign to me that the New Deal was now compelling not just Democrats to play on its turf, but Republicans as well. So the New Deal movement becomes a New Deal political order in the early 50s. This is the moment when the Republicans under Eisenhower get on board. And it's not clear what Eisenhower felt in his heart. Um, right. He does write a private letter to his brother in which he says any Republican who thinks about getting rid of Social Security, labor's power, high taxation rate, 
They will have no future in politics. Hmm. And for me, I didn't he- need to hear anything else. No future in politics. This is a sign of submission, acquiescence, mm-hmm. someone who wants to be a relevant political player, just as Clinton wanted to be a relevant political player in the 1990s. The question becomes, what do you have to do to remain a, a, a relevant political player? And what you have to do is to accept the core principles of what is perceived to be the dominant political order in American life. And this is what Eisenhower pulls off. It doesn't mean there aren't dissenters. It doesn't mean that there are Taft dies in the early 50s. It doesn't mean there are uh, no dissenters as radical or even more radical than he was. Uh, this is the moment when William F. Buckley is is launching the National Review and trying to and trying to reassert a truer conservatism in American life. There are other people very unhappy with Eisenhower and the Republican Party, including a man by the name of Ronald Reagan. But they have no traction. They have no political traction in the 1950s. They have no political influence. Uh, mm-hmm. They might be eloquent to their supporters, but they are utterly mar- marginal in American life. And this, to me, is a sign that a powerful political order is at work ordering the political landscape and determining what it is possible to talk about in politics. So you had alluded to the Cold War and the Soviet Union is uh, an an important part of this story in your account. So I want to ask you about that because, you know, I think that there is an idea, especially on the left, and I'm sympathetic to this idea that, you know, anti-communism in the 1940s and 50s, uh, the Red Scare and so forth, you know, obviously fractured the labor movement and in a way, you know, undermined key aspects of the New Deal or sort of kept the New Deal from becoming more radical or more transformative than it could have been. Uh, Now, you actually argue that the threat of communism helped stabilize the New Deal order. Uh, So so maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, How did the presence of the Soviet Union kind of shape the New Deal order? Um, And specifically, how did it play into uh, what, what you were just talking about, the Republican acquiescence to the New Deal order? Well, the argument that you referred to that you're sympathetic to, I am actually sympathetic to as well, (laughs) or was. And if you go back to not just my earliest writing as a scholar, but writing for a decade or two, you will find precisely that argument made, that the welfare state, the labor movement, popular democracy, uh, were all kept from achieving their potential by uh, using scaremongering about communism coming to America. And that inclined Democrats and perhaps even progressives to moderate their demands and do things so they wouldn't be seen as being soft on communism. This is a very popular uh, argument uh, and view. It's true in the academy. It's, It's true beyond the academy among a lot of people who think about this very seriously. So I take this idea myself very seriously. And I think there are instances where it's obviously true, where mm-hmm. progressive elements of the labor movement, of, of, of other organizations in American life, of left political organizations, of civil rights organizations, they were red baited. They were mm-hmm. uh, either compelled to purge themselves or voluntarily took on a, a, a purging so as to make their organizations more suitable for uh, the vital center, we might say, of uh, of American life. But as I was writing this book, I I began to notice an, another pattern and to ask other questions. And I began to ask, well, why is what I would call the apogee of the 
welfare state, why does that coincide with the height of the Cold War? Um, why does the strongest the American labor movement has ever been, why does that occur when the Cold War is at its most intense in the 1950s and 60s? Why are those decades the decades in which uh, income and wealth inequality are less than any other period of American life. Uh, it's, this is economists like Paul Krugman and others have called this the Great Compression, where the distance between the rich and the poor shrinks very, very significantly. Um, so that by 1960, the average CEO of an American corporation is making 20 times what an average factory worker is making. Uh, by 2000, they are making 300 times what the right. average factory worker is making. And if you go back to the early 20th century, you find similar ratios as well. So why is why is this moment of relative equality, why has it happened in 1960 or 1955 or 1965? And so as I began to think about this, I began to see communism and the Soviet Union in somewhat different terms. And I began to... Uh, think that actually uh, communism was a force that enabled the labor movement to become stronger, the welfare state to become more accepted, high tax rates to be seen as legitimate, because communism was seen as both a global and domestic threat. And there was a theory at the time that communism was totalitarian. Uh, I think that theory was subsequently proven to be wrong, or at least in one important respect, wrong. What scared people about totalitarianism, a theory developed by Hannah Arendt and others, was that totalitarian regimes, and this included uh, collectivisms of the right as well as the left, communism and fascism and Nazism, this was seen as being a new kind of dictatorship that the world had never seen before. Uh, and because the leaders of these regimes had found ways using new technologies to mobilize the masses and and uh, embed them in all kinds of propaganda um, to either be on a war footing constantly or to threaten to people with being on a war footing constantly, uh, that, that ordinary people could not resist uh, the power of these propaganda agencies and the power that these regimes had. And so thus the theory went, and here I want to distinguish between the theory and reality, but the theory went, and the theory was believed, the theory was that if a totalitarian regime was established, you would never get rid of it. If a communist state was established, you could never get rid of it. It would be there forever. People would never find a way out, even if they wanted to. Their demands would be crushed under an unbelievable power of autocracy. And because this theory was believed, and this helps us understand why the United States got itself so deeply invested in Vietnam, which did not have a market for the United States that it was interested in in the 1950s, did not have natural resources, it was the domino effect that if Vietnam fell, it would be permanently communist. If, uh, and then it would expand to Thailand, and then it would expand to Laos, and then it would expand to Cambodia, and then it would expand to Indonesia, and then it would expand to the Philippines. And God forbid it then, it then ex expanded to uh, Japan. Of course, it had already expanded to China. Uh, the, what made the domino theory so fearful to people was that 
the sense not just that countries would fall to communism, but once they fell, they could never be freed. Mm-hmm. And so m- more and more of the world would be encased in from the West's perspective, the capitalist West perspective, would be ensnared in a kind of slave realm from which people could never be freed. And so one had to fight this wherever it reared its head, and one had to fight it with a great deal of vigor. Domestically, I think that capitalist elites were willing to compromise with labor when communism was strong because they feared that if they did not compromise with non-communist elements of the labor movement, that the labor movement might become communist at some point. Communists had a strong presence in the labor movement. They were among the most important organizers of labor unions uh, in the 1930s uh, and 40s. In the late 40s, before the Taft-Hartley Act, um, communists were presidents in about seven or eight unions, comprising more than a million members. So the idea that communism could not come to America, uh, this was not an idea believed by many political leaders and many elite members of the capitalist community. And the fear that communism might take over their unions, their enterprises, their country, inclined them to compromise in ways that they otherwise might not have been willing to compromise. They were, they were doing something they didn't really want to do. It's not like they wanted strong unions at their workplaces, but they felt that the um, compromise with non-communist labor unions was worth it because it would establish a model of industrial relations that would be resolutely anti-communist, and over the long term, that would benefit capitalism. So capitalists had an incentive to compromise with elements of the labor movement that they otherwise would not have had. The big compromise that comes to symbolize the New Deal order is the so-called Treaty of Detroit uh, between the United Auto Workers and the big three automobile manufacturers uh, in in Detroit. Uh, And uh, this became a model for labor relations. Uh, The leader of the UAW, Walter Ruther, uh, had been very interested in communism in his youth. In fact, had spent a couple years with his brother Victor in a Soviet automobile plant uh, in the early to mid-30s and regarded it as, at the time, the epitome of a proletarian democracy. He then becomes disillusioned with communism. He fights to purge uh, communists from his union. So he's not that he was friendly to communists, but he also, I think, understood that the communist threat could be used to compel capitalists to enter into concessions to the labor movement, movement that they might not otherwise be willing to countenance. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately this affects not just capitalist elites, I think it affects the Republican Party and helps us understand uh, why Eisenhower got the nod over uh, Taft, Robert Taft. Um, Taft uh, was very slow to rise to the challenge of the Cold War. He was not eager for a worldwide commitment of America to fighting in all these places. He did not want a big military. Eisenhower was just the opposite. He said communism is the biggest threat we face internationally and domestically, and we must be vigilant. We must have a large state. We must uh, acquiesce to certain working class demands. We must prove that America can deliver a better life 
to Americans in the Soviet Union can to its own citizens. And so a welfare state's important. Good wages are important. Uh, orderly and um, productive relations between capital and labor are important. All these things that the Republican Party otherwise would have objected to become palatable to them. It's not like this is their first choice, but they feel they have to make these concessions so as to ensure that America will continue to be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so this is the way in which the fear of communism influences elites and other segments of American society to make compromises with labor, to accept a robust welfare state, to to tax individual Americans to unheard of levels. This is worth it for the greater cause of preserving America as a capitalist country. But that preservation, because there was this ardent opponent of capitalism out there, uh, this capitalism required very serious compromises with elements of the working class and the poor in American society. So given kind of this like geopolitical balance of forces, uh, I, I suppose that now raises the question of why, when and why did the New Deal order collapse, right? Or when did it start to unravel? Because, you know, the Soviet Union obviously won't collapse until the 1990s. Uh, and in the 1970s, you know, there's, there's another economic crash in the U.S. So why was the kind of specter of the Soviet Union not effective by that point? Well, the the... The New Deal order has uh, fracture points and tension points. All political orders do. The United States is a huge country. These political parties have to corral very different constituencies for the sake of continuing to uh, to to be elected. Uh, and so there are all, always tension points. Um, and there there are three developments that occur in the 60s and 70s that begin to unravel the New Deal order. The first is race. Uh, In order for uh, Roosevelt to succeed with his progressive legislation in the 1930s, he needs the support of the white South. The white South is segregationist. It's reigned by terror. Blacks have no political voice. There's really only one effective political party. The Democrats, and because there's only one effective political party, congressmen and senators serving from the South tend to serve very long periods of time because there's no effective opposition, which means they have seniority, which means they control critical committees. And these Southern barons of the Southern barons of Congress are very powerful in the 1930s, and they tell Roosevelt that we will go along with your progressive economic legislation as long as you don't interfere with the racial and class hierarchies of the South, and as long as you don't touch Jim Crow, which is really another name for American apartheid. And Roosevelt feels he has no alternative but to go along with that. But the New Deal is also mobilizing blacks and also setting in motion a mass migration of African-Americans from the South to the North, where they become more politically effective and have opportunity to vote. And so the civil rights issue can only be put off for so long. And it comes to a head in the 1960s when Democratic politicians are faced with um, uh, uh, embracing a campaign for racial equality uh, and putting uh, one of the worst elements, perhaps the worst element of American life behind them or um, continuing to 
to accede to the white Democrats of the South's demands. And in the 60s, the Democratic Party moves decisively away from segregation, uh, embraces the civil rights movement. And this causes what had been a very important electoral constituency of the Democratic Party to begin its own long march from the Democrat to the Republican Party. So the, Demo- so the Democrats are embroiled in that. The Vietnam War sounds like a good idea, but it becomes a, a, a disastrous uh, foreign policy venture. And so this becomes another uh, important point of tension. And then the uh, world, the global political economy begins to change in, in profound ways, in ways that don't immediately affect the Soviet Union or the communist nations and bloc. Uh, The U.S. had no serious rivals in the 1940s and 50s, and it does in the form of Japan uh, and Germany by the late 60s and early 70s. And also there's a profound restructuring of relations between the global north and the global south. The economic miracle after World War II depended on the cheap flow of energy. The cheap flow of energy depended on Anglo-American companies controlling uh, how much oil was going to be extracted from Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern countries and the prices that were going to be charged. And the early 70s is marked by the rise of OPEC and the declaration on the part of these commodity producing nations that these resources belong to us and not to you, global North countries. And so there's a radical uh, reordering of uh, the terms under which petroleum and other commodities will be produced and the price at which they be, will be sold to the global north. And so on top of the social um, divisions that emerge in the 1960s uh, comes this economic shock, this oil shock, uh, and suddenly uh, the global north accustomed to the unending cheap supply and flow of petroleum is faced with uh, extremely rising prices and a recession happens that the New Deal policymakers with their Keynesian toolkit can't solve. So this is uh, what opens the door to alternative ideas. This is what brings the neoliberals from the margins closer to the mainstream. This is what brings them from irrelevance to relevance and they find their man in Ronald Reagan. So the, this is also the decade in which the Soviet Union is beginning to ail economically. In the 19, from the 1930s to the 1950s, one could have serious arguments about who was doing a better job of providing for its people, the Soviet Union or the capitalist West. By the late 60s and early 70s, the uh, Soviet Union is falling behind its economic ailing, its uh, its disregard of, of markets, its attempts to run everything from the center through uh, nationally engineered five-year plans uh, is not working. New technologies are beginning to appear that are going to come to be associated with the IT revolution. And these require a kind of free flow of information in a society of the sort that the Soviet Union is not willing to allow. So it begins to slide in the 70s uh, and 80s. And I would say Reagan sort of baits them into uh, into a deeper slide uh, through his so-called uh, Star Wars campaign, where he uh, undertakes to um, uh, move away from 
mutually what was called the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, the Soviet Union and Russia not attacking each other because everything would be destroyed. Reagan believes that he can create a dome over America that's going to stop all incoming uh, nuclear weapons and thus eliminate the threat of the Soviet Union, which would allow America to go on the offensive against the Soviet Union in ways that it had not before. I remember this. Reagan was laughed at at the time by many Americans in the sense that um, it, this is never going to work. And of course, missiles that were sent up were always misfiring and clearly nuclear weapons were going to get through. But the people who took this threat very seriously were the Soviets themselves, who felt that America had, had a decided technological advantage. And if this was allowed to go on, uh, that the uh, United States would, over the long term, uh, gain a decisive advantage over the Soviet Union. And this becomes one of the factors plunging the Soviet Union into a, a deeper and more prolonged crisis and opens the door to a, a reformer like Gorbachev, uh, who tries to introduce more marketization, more political freedom into Soviet society, he is going to fail. And when he fails, um, uh, this is a very complicated situation, but let me just say now that he may have been one of the last believers in the possibility of Soviet socialism. That's what allowed him to embark on his campaign, a very serious reform. But at the end of the day, he comes to believe that if 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 socialism can't be saved, if it can't be truly socialistic, then the Soviet Union is not worth saving. And he, in a sense, allows the Soviet Union to fall apart and to slip into history, which may be almost unprecedented in the animal, animal, animal not animals, annals, annals of empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and this leads to the extinction of the Soviet Union by 1991. So the... Neoliberal order is the neoliberal neoliberalism is not yet in order. Reagan gets elected. He's uh, putting neoliberal principles into action. But I argue in the book that neoliberalism doesn't really become a political order until after the Soviet Union's fall in 1991 and the elimination of capitalism's most ardent enemy from the face of the planet. The ability of capital to go global in a way that had not been able to go global since prior to the um, Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 and arguably since prior to the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. This moment in the 1990s is the first time that capitalism becomes completely global in a way it had not been for 75 years. And it also forces the left to reckon with the spectacular nature of the Soviet failure. This the most ambitious effort to construct an economy on radically different principles from capitalist principles. Uh, no one expected the Soviet Union to enter the dustbin of history as quickly and as decisively as it did in 1991. And this causes, I think, a... Um, crisis of faith among leftists of all sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, even though many had already decided that the Soviet Union was not a model, they wanted to follow for their own countries. Nevertheless, to see even the capacity for reform eliminated, any kind of future for socialism in the Soviet Union, the complete abandonment of that, I think causes a crisis of faith among the left everywhere in the world. And this creates further opportunity for neoliberal ideas to triumph. Uh, so 
It's a long-winded answer to your question, a series of factors in the 60s and 70s allowing neoliberalism to to gather steam, to elect a president, to put in place policies for that president to put pressure on the Soviet Union that, in a sense, is going to intensify its decline and then its abolition. And that creates, that's the enabling condition for neoliberalism moving from movement to political order in the 1990s. So I think to wrap up, um, I want to sort of fast forward to the uh, erosion or the downfall of neoliberalism, which we talked about uh, in greater detail in our last talk. But I think in a way, the end of neoliberalism or the erosion of neoliberalism kind of brings us back to the New Deal, right? Because as you pointed out, um, one of the kind of hallmarks of the crumbling legitimacy of neoliberalism is the rise of a politician like Bernie Sanders. And so much of his platform, I think, very explicitly harkens back to kind of new, a New Deal style framework of uh, the public good. Uh, you know, he is a proponent of uh, the Green New Deal, which is, you know, very explicitly a kind of an attempt to revive some of the public works programs of the New Deal under a kind of climate uh, climate framework, right? So I, I suppose the question is, you know, without this specter of communism, uh, do you see possibilities for another sort of New Deal style compromise between capital and labor uh, as we're in the waning days of neoliberalism? Well, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> right. I, I, I feel I should turn it back to you since this is going to be your generation's challenge to figure out. And this, in some ways, is Jackman's challenge, right, in terms of the kind of discussions that are going on in the pages of the journal and discussions you're having with each other and your and and your readers and those people who you are engaged with. Uh, and to the uh, appearance of Sanders, his significance, uh, and he was both a product of and accelerated the revival of the left, which I date to Occupy Wall Street, which other people might date to the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999. We can we can debate that at another time, but there, the left is reviving in some way in the in the first decade of the 21st century, and I see Occupy Wall Street as a critical moment that enables Sanders, it enables Warren, it enables uh, the other progressives and radicals who now sit in Congress and uh, and also who are involved in all these uh, various left movements in, a, in political life that didn't exist in 10 or 10 or 15 years ago. So uh, and 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 Bern, and Bernie Sanders' success in 2016 and 2020, forcing his opponents, both in the Democratic and Republican parties, to take him into account, has been a tremendous accelerating force in the revival of this left. So it is now a force to be reckoned with in American life that it has not been, I would argue, since the 1930s and 40s, which makes the New Deal moment that much more relevant. The question is, can it succeed without um, the hammer supplied by the communist movement? I don't mean that necessarily directly, but the, the fear of communism mm -hmm. and, and the conviction that many elites in American society, many capitalists felt that there was uh, an imperative of compromise so as to avert the worst and a willingness to consider a reformed capitalism, a capitalism more oriented to the public interest for the sake of preserving capitalist institutions, even if the revenue stream and the profit stream would not be quite as high as, as it otherwise would be, to accept a moderation 
in uh, the division between those who are poor and those who are who are extraordinarily wealthy. And, you know, we're seeing the revival of labor movements in a whole variety of places in the United States now, which is reminiscent from some of those early revivals in the 1930s, 1933, 34, 35, you know, very uncertain, no central direction, but a sense that labor has to be on the march for America to move in a progressive direction. The, the question is, what will compel um, elites in American society to compromise with that movement? Uh, and now part of the answer to that is numbers, mm-hmm. power, uh, the ability to disrupt, disrupt production uh, if th- not some kind of accommodation is not reached, if no one in America can get a cup of coffee because all the Star- Starbucks workers are on strike. Um, that's got to create some turmoil in American society. And uh, uh, But what's going to compel the head of Starbucks to do what he's currently refusing to do or what Jeff Bezos doesn't want to do, which is to enter into a compromise mm-hmm. uh, with the for- forces of organized labor. Now, if the forces of organized labor continue to grow uh, in strength and in numbers and, and, and political influence, they will feel that pressure. Uh, but I find myself asking, and I don't have a, a ready answer for you to this question, of uh, if an extra force is needed beyond the give and take of American politics, what will that force be? Right. Uh, you know, it's possible that um, climate politics will uh, uh, offer that kind of force uh, in the sense of it's just becoming harder and harder for almost anyone to ignore uh, the damage being done to the planet. Um, And it may be that uh, that acts as a compulsory force. Hmm. Uh, It may be that there will be a a militant form of socialism that emerges that tries to extract um, what was positive about communism from what I would say can't be repeated, a kind of tyranny of control from the center. Uh, it, it, there may be a new kind of political formation that, uh, that arises that recoups some of communism's power without um, carrying with it um, the kind of damage that I would say communism did to those groups who aspire to having democracy. But if I put the question back to you, um, where do you look, you know, in the discussions that you're having? Right. Uh, well, because, I mean, because this this is this is a this is a key question for mm-hmm. our time. Yeah. This is a key question. Yeah. Well, the reason why the question of the Soviet Union and the way that it operated during the 1940s and or during the 30s and 40s was why I'm so interested in your answer to that is because I don't see something like that uh, existing right now, right? Like a kind of geopolitical specter that can, uh, as you say, sort of um, help shape the opposition, the acquiescence of the opposition. Uh, But I mean, you, you know, what you said about the power of the labor movement and its ability to alter or shut down production in strategic sectors, uh, that's all we talk about on this show and in Jacobin. So, (laughs) so that's where we're looking as well. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's an open question, uh, to be continued, I suppose. 
Well, I would put it to you and your listeners to, um, and and if they if they're those who listen to this podcast uh, in their comments um, to hold forth on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested uh, as well, so please weigh in. <laughs> uh, because I think you frame it exactly right, and sometimes half the battle is framing the right question. Because if you frame the right question, at least you can focus your mind on the direction in which an answer has has to go. And I do believe very strongly that the great compromise of the 1940s and early 50s uh, was a reflection of, as you phrased it, these geopolitical pressures mm-hmm. that the United States was feeling as, as a nation, that elites in American society were, were feeling uh, a real worry on their part that um, if they did not compromise, the system that they value might not survive another 10 or, or 15 years. And I think, uh, I, I hope that this discussion that we're having will um, generate some interesting ideas uh, about how to think about this. Uh, and it's, 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 it's something that uh, it's very important to to discuss uh, if a new progressive political order is to triumph. Mm -hmm. All right. Gary Gerstel, again, is the author of the recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. We will link our other interview with him down below. Gary, great to see you. Thank you again. Thank you for having me.